0: Jesus suffered more intensely in his body than any of us can imagine. But when we make that to be central, we despise the cross and we make it an object of pity. We make Jesus into a victim. And Jesus was a victor, not a victim. Luke's gospel, let's look from verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to save to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So Jesus encounters these people who are mourning and lamenting through him for for him as he's making his meandering sort of sad parade, we could say, through the streets of Jerusalem. So as he, as he encounters these people who are mourning and lamenting for him, for him, I ask myself, well, who are these people? Because I don't see the crowd. This. Mark calls it, I'm sorry, Luke calls it a great multitude. Matthew calls it a great multitude also. So it's a lot of people. This is a flock of people. The streets of Jerusalem are packed from Passover. And this is just added to the excitement. There's people upon people upon people. So what among this crowd would mean that some people are lamenting and mourning for him? Because I remind myself that literally... Just about an hour ago, this is the same crowd that was crying, we want his blood. Crucify this man. So I don't find it very convincing that there were people among the crowd who who were just emotionally sad over this and were torn and lamenting what was about to happen to Jesus, thinking that this was just this big mistake. I see the hand of God, God the Spirit, has worked in this crowd to stir them up to call for Jesus's blood because God was the one who wanted his son on the cross. This wasn't the work of Satan. This was the work of God to call for the death of his son because it was his plan to crush his son. So this crowd that just literally minutes ago was crying for his blood, I don't now see them crying and lamenting for him. Instead, this is most likely what we would think of as professional mourners. That was a thing in Jesus's day. There were these professional mourners or professional lamenters. So when there was a funeral or, or uh, someone had died or someone was really sick, one thing that you didn't want is if you were a person of any sort of importance, you didn't want your funeral to be sort of this quiet, somber affair. You wanted people overcome with grief. And so there were these people called professional mourners. We come across them in the story of Jairus' daughter. Remember the story of Jairus' daughter? Jesus is on the way, doesn't get there in time, supposedly. And when Jesus gets there, there's already the professional, the professional lamenters who are, in the words of Matthew, making a big raucous, making a huge, loud noise over the wailing and crying that they're doing over the girl that has died. Now, certainly they were sad. Certainly, there was a lot of sadness, but that's a picture of, of a profession of that day. I don't know if it was a full-time profession or just maybe a sideline gig, but there were these people that were paid mourners, and they were paid mourners because apparently they cried really well. So I don't know if that's a thing today, but if you can cry really well, maybe it is a thing today, and you could have a sideline gig of being a professional mourner, but it was a thing in Jesus' day. So most likely these were professional lamenters. Now, why would there have been professional lamenters leading up to Jesus's execution? They were most likely under the pay of the temple. Now, why would the temple want to pay people to mourn for Jesus? Because it was the the temple and the leadership of the temple, the religious, religious leadership that brought all this about. They wanted, nevertheless, to put on a certain appearance because this was still a tragedy for Israel. For an Israelite, a Jewish man to be executed by Rome was still a tragedy, even though they wanted it to happen. So there was a certain appearance that needed to be maintained. A Jewish man was about to be executed at the hands of Gentiles and Jews needed to be mourning for that. So there was these mourners. I, I feel like that they were most likely not genuine, but they were paid mourners. But either way, there are these laments and these cries being lifted up These whales being lifted up because Jesus and apparently these other two men are being led to the place of crucifixion. And notice Jesus's words here. Returning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem. Now, don't take that to mean that Jesus somehow was expressing some sort of commonality with them, some sort of connection as though they are people of his family. Daughters of Jerusalem was just a common phrase of the day that just referred to women of Israel. Daughters of Jerusalem. And notice this rebuke. Jesus will rebuke them in the sternest fashion. Do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. So Jesus quotes there from Hosea 10 verse 8. The context of Hosea 10 verse 8 is the prophet is speaking of the wrath of God that's about to be poured out upon Samaria. The Assyrians will soon come and they will devastate Samaria. All of this is part of the wrath of God because of the wickedness of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the prophet is saying, when all that happens, you will say it would be better for mountains to fall on us than this. It would be better for the hills to consume us than for what's happening to us now. So Jesus speaks those words and these words of rebuke. And the words of rebuke are, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And then he references the coming wrath of God upon Rome in about four decades when the Romans sacked the city and Jesus compares it to the days of Hosea in which he's going to say, in that time, you are also going to say it'd be better for mountains to fall on us than for what's happening to us now. So he's referencing that, but he's also referencing the long view of this prophecy, the the long application, so to speak, which is to say this. I'm not the one that you need to be weeping for. You need to be weeping for yourself because the Messiah is literally walking right past you to make atonement for your sins. And all you can think about is crying for the death of a man. Remember back in chapter 19 of Luke, when Jesus makes that entry into the city, you remember his words there, his piercing words. You did not see the day of your visitation. When he pronounces that the the stones will cry out, and your rebuke and your condemnation because you did not realize the day of your visitation, meaning Messiah has come and you didn't know it. In a similar way, Jesus is saying to these women, you're weeping because a man's going to die, a man you don't even know. You really need to be weeping because you're about to die in your sins. And an eternity awaits you of torment. That's what you really need to be weeping for. You need to be weeping because you're a sinner without repentance. And then he goes on to tell this proverb, if they do this when the wood is green, then what will they do when it's dry? Meaning, if these things happen when things are good, or to put it another way, if you're rejecting Messiah when Messiah is here, what are you going to do when I'm gone? And then the rebuke gets even sterner. Jesus says, in those days, you'll say, blessed are the barren who who, uh, have the wombs that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Do you know what the greatest curse for an Israelite woman was? Barrenness. Think of Elizabeth or, or think of Leah or think of Sarah. And just the, the scorn, the scourge, in which an Israelite woman considered it to be the greatest curse from God to be barren. And Jesus says, You will wish for that instead of what's coming. This is the sternest possible rebuke that Jesus could have given to her. Now, what is this about? What this is really getting at is, I believe, a misfocus or a misemphasis on what's happening they are lamenting they are mourning that a man is about to suffer in his body and die and jesus's rebuke for them is to say you are completely misunderstanding what you need to be mourning and weeping for and the last thing that you need to weep for is me You see, what this shines a light on, I think, is something that's very, very common this time of year in the church, and that is an inappropriate and a wrong focus on Good Friday, which is to say a focus on Jesus's physical suffering. We've all seen this. I have sat under sermons, when, which the whole, basically the whole sermon was about the physical suffering of Jesus. Most of us in the room have watched movies like Passion of the Christ and which is just physical suffering. And that physical suffering can, in a sense, it can sort of grab our attention and draw us in. And it's something that is really prevalent, say in the Roman Catholic Church, to focus on the physical suffering of Christ. Within the Roman Catholic Church, there's, There is an extreme focus on his physical suffering. That's why you see the, the Roman Catholic crucifix with the Jesus still on it, or all the artwork and the statues of Mary holding the dead, limp body of Jesus. You can Google it, and you can find just image after image of all these paintings and artwork and statues of the dead body of Jesus, arm flopping down, head flopping to the side. What those images do is they invite you, and here's the important part, they invite you to pity Jesus. And Jesus says, do not pity me. Your pity be damned. I am not an object of your pity. Jesus is not one to be pitied. He is going to this cross in victory. He is going to this cross to achieve what he and the Father have planned for eons. He is going to this cross, as the writer of the Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, with joy, despising the shame. Yes, Jesus was crucified in shame. But His desire is not for us to look upon His shame and just focus on the shame and the physical suffering and the physical torment. All of those sorts of thoughts and those images, they invite your heart to pity Jesus. And Jesus most emphatically rejects your pity. Jesus is not an object of pity. You know what thoughts of pity stir within us? Thoughts of pity necessarily bring about in our mind thoughts of victor and victim. And if there's a victim, there has to be a victor. And if Jesus is the victim, he's not the victor. Jesus is not a victim. And this is why this woman's pity, whether it be genuine or paid for, this is why this woman's pity is so offensive to Jesus. Because, you know, it's, it can be hard to distinguish between pity and condescension. Because those things that you pity, is just a short step from that to condescension. We desecrate the cross of Christ when we pity him for his suffering. Now, does this mean that we are to ignore the physical suffering of Jesus? Absolutely not. But all heresy begins, we've said this before, all heresy begins with an improper emphasis. Emphasizing what the Scriptures do not emphasize and failing to emphasize what the Scriptures do emphasize. And do you know that every single gospel, all four gospels, all four gospels describe Jesus's execution in the same terms. All four gospels will say things like, and there they crucified him and move on. All four gospels will say things like, and then they flogged him and move on. All four gospels will treat the physical suffering of Jesus in the identical way, which is to say an absolute economy of words, an absolute paucity of words that just simply narrate the event and move on. And they focus on everything but that. They focus on the betrayal. They focus on the teaching. They focus on, on the trial. They focus on Pilate. They focus on everything except the physical suffering. Jesus suffered more intensely in his body than any of us can imagine. But when we make that to be central, we despise the cross and we make it an object of pity. We make Jesus into a victim. And Jesus was a victor, not a victim. And this woman who's to offer to Him this fake pity, this fake sympathy, Jesus says, let me tell you who you should pity. You should pity yourself. Because unless you repent you will die in your sins. I'm headed to victory. I'm secure in my father. As, as we're told, Jesus continued to entrust himself to his father. He was secure in what he was doing. He is going there in joy and he is going there in glory. We are, we are taught by the New Testament that the cross is the glory of Christ. Jesus will say in the upper room, he'll say to the father, father, restore to me the glory which we have. This is the glory of the cross. We talked about it in Ephesians 1 as we went through that long section of Ephesians 1, how all of that was about the glory of Christ through the cross. So take care, brothers and sisters, not to allow in your heart an emotion, a sense of, of pity to arise for the physical suffering of Christ, his spiritual suffering infinitely outweighs his physical suffering. And the spiritual activity of taking upon himself the sin of his people was far more excruciating, and that is the focus of Scripture. So now lastly, let's look at the last component, and that is the component of the wine that was offered to him. We see this in Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 23. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So what's the deal with the wine? Who's offering it? Why didn't he take it? And why did they spike it with myrrh? So the they offered him wine. We're not told who the they is. It's either the soldiers or the women who are crying and mourning. So I think that most likely, what's happening here is that this was a custom. This was this was what was done in accordance, I think, with, for example, Proverbs chapter thirty-one and verse six, where we're told uh, you'll. Recognize, of course, Proverbs 31, that chapter there. Proverbs 31 tells us, give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. So I think that what was happening here, these women who are the lamenters, the mourners, also had prepared this wine mixed with myrrh to give to the execution victims on their way to the cross. So wine mixed with myrrh would have formed a type of narcotic, a a powerful, for Jesus' day, a powerful certainly not in comparison to the drugs of today, but for Jesus' time, it would have been a powerful pain reliever or powerful mind-numbing sort of agent. So they offer it to Jesus, this wine mixed with myrrh, as an opportunity to give him some sort of sensory dulling, some sort of mind dulling before the events of the cross. So... How was it that these women, if it was the women, how were they able to offer to Jesus this wine mixed with myrrh? Isn't he surrounded by soldiers? I think that probably the soldiers were most likely cooperating. And that's why the they, they offered him wine, could have also been the soldiers. Either the soldiers or the women could have offered Jesus wine. Why would the soldiers want Jesus to have this mind-numbing drug? Didn't they want to inflict as much pain as possible? Well the soldiers would have been experts at what they were doing. They would have been experienced executioners. And an experienced executioner would have quickly told you that no matter how weak a man appears to be, no matter how close to the edge of death a man appears to be, when the moment of death comes, they can turn into a wildcat. That's just the way that we're made. When that moment of death comes there can be a strength that you didn't know was there and so by experience the soldiers have learned that in that moment when the nails are about to go in it can be hard to get it done because even though the person is weakened and has been flogged even even so it can still be a struggle to get that done so the experienced executioner would have allowed and even maybe been the ones giving of the wine to facilitate, to make it something that wasn't going to be such a struggle to get him on the cross. Once he's on the cross, the wine will wear off anyway. So that was probably what that was all about. Just, just this, maybe it was an effort of compassion on the part of the women, or maybe it was just a matter of expediency on the part of the soldiers. Either way, it was to have the same effect, which is to dull the senses and dull the mind, and Jesus refuses it. And that's the takeaway here. Jesus is not going to go to sleep on the cross. Like the disciples who went to sleep when they were supposed to be praying, Jesus will not go to sleep on the cross. He will be wide awake through the whole experience. And this is, I think, something that's incredibly comforting for us, incredibly encouraging and comforting. That the one who was about to become our sin, 2 Corinthians five twenty-one, he became our sin on that cross the one who is about to become our sin, will say to us, no, I will do this with total perception. I will do this with perfect apprehension of what I am about to become. Our Messiah needed no dulling of his senses or weakening of his mind in order to embrace the sin that he would become in order to save his people. And isn't that encouraging? Isn't that encouraging? That Messiah became our sin with perfect apprehension, with perfect perception of what He was becoming. How discouraging it would have been for Christ to have been made to be our sin under some sort of effect of, of some type of chemical. And then the chemical wears off. How discouraging that would that have been? But Jesus becomes our sin with complete and perfect apprehension, with complete, perfect perception of who it is that he would become, of what it is that he would be made to be. Romans 5 and verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When the iniquity of us all, Isaiah 53, was laid upon him, it was laid upon one who had complete understanding of what he was becoming. How encouraging that is, brothers and sisters, that He gave Himself up for us. At the risk of sounding irreverent, I don't want to sound irreverent, but at the risk of sounding a tad bit irreverent, there were no beer goggles on the cross. Jesus knew exactly what He was taking upon Himself. And He needed no mind-altering substances in order for Him to do that.